story that must be told. From beginning to end. Now, here's a little story I got to tell. Here is a story about music. Stories about songs, Rudy Ray Moore, a.k.a. Mr. Dolomite. Dolomite. Once record labels realized that rap wasn't going to be a fad and disappear in 82 like so many of them and other people predicted, you know, it changed because, you know, mainly because of the programmable drum machine came out around this time and that sort of gave them the power of the sound of rap music back to the artists themselves or at least back into the hands of creatives. So that caused an explosion, and that explosion led to um, major labels getting more involved in signing rap acts. Before that, it was mainly independents like Sugar Hill, Enjoy, Profile, Tommy Boy, and others. But, you know, 82 was a turning point for seeing majors starting to get more interested. I mean, already you had Curtis Blow signed to Mercury since 7980. You know, but by 83, you had Phyllis Ford being the first group signed to a major Electra. signings you were seeing by the mid to late 80s you were seeing them signing whole rap departments for certain major labels and pretty much every major label was getting in on it one of the only labels that was slow to the rap party was AM records for whatever reason in the 80s they signed some r&b that had rap elements but didn't have much for full rap groups in 88 they had a deal with rap a lot out of houston and they signed raheem and put out his album, Raheem the Vigilante, in um, 88. That made sense, I think, because AM was like, you know, heavily pop and rock and rap a lot based in the South and Houston in particular. They use a lot of live instrumentation in their music and had kind of a, a feel that might have seemed more natural to someone AM. I think they could hear it because of the, the, the guitars and the live 
elements made it might have made it more appealing. That's my guess. And also the Raheem album had some rock elements. A song called Shotgun that I was a fan of. And then after the album, he did a song for a soundtrack called Self Preservation that also has some rock elements. So imagining that had some degree of helping AM get involved in um, the rap game. And so they put out a couple of soundtracks around there, too, on the label, and they had a couple of rap songs on there. And it looks like when I look on Discogs, they may have been involved in like licensing some things because there's some things that I see on AM Records that I know weren't signed to the label, like it's like a Sonic 12-inch and a Sir Mix-a-Lot 12-inch and a few things. So they must have licensed some things in certain areas or something. But beyond Raheem, there wasn't much else fully rap-wise on the label until 1990. And they signed Tragedy, the Intelligent Hoodlum of the Juice Crew. I drop words you won't find in a dictionary. I write rhymes to improve my vocabulary, drama, art. English education, and I'm the man. I design the animation mentally in which I control. The equalizer rises up on your FM mode, in which I use with telepath. And it's who's on your photograph. I confuse your conscience and bark your brain. You may think that I'm sick, but I'm perfectly sane. I design my rhymes with architectural construction. But that's another story, a different function. You see, it's mandatory to invoke fear. The rebel is here. And I didn't remember this, but just so happened, I just recently moved back to Minneapolis and I just saw this magazine, DJ Times, sitting on top of a stack of magazines and I opened it up and there was an article about A&M Records getting into rap, stating they were late to get in the rap game. I was like, oh, so I'm not just theorizing that. They even feel the same way. But even more amazing in the article is, I totally forgot this, the A&R leading the rap department in 1990 was Alonzo Brown, a.k.a. Mr. Hyde, the topic of the first story in this whole podcast. So a connection I didn't even know was there was there. And so in this article, he's talking about how they're ready to finally get into rap and they got Tudjan Hulum and Groove Be Chill. So that was sort of like them putting their foot down in the rap game. In 91, they had a group called Rappers Fundamental, which was um, led by Easy Moby, a very important producer of the 90s. But they also had like record by an artist called Overweight Pooch, which never sounded like something I need to listen to. And I believe this was only in Canada. Their A&M division in Canada had a record by an MC named Kish, who I was aware of through a compilation in 91 called The Cold Front. But I didn't know he put an album out in the 91. But So they tried after the trash and the Ruby Chill do some more things, but they went like, they stepped their foot in and did good, and then did a little bit of a misstep, you know? So I, I really wasn't paying attention to them. After one year, I gave them one year, 1990, I was like, okay, they got something going on. Next year, I was like, yeah, maybe they don't, they don't know how to do this. They don't understand this, I, I'm done. But by 92, they finally got it right. They launched a thing called Tough Break Records, of um, you know their a new rap department. It was being led by a guy named Evan Forrester. Um, they had the second album 
by Intelligent Hoodlum as one of their uh, leading campaigns. And they had an artist called Dred Scott. They had Top Choice Click out of Boston, who already had made some noise independently. And a little later, like, you know, maybe six months or so later, they had Straight G, Grip Stuff, and a few other things. They're trying to get into that kind of like, that whole like, quote unquote, gangster rap stuff. So they were kind of like trying to really get a footing into where rap was at the time. And one of the first things they were going to be putting out was the soundtrack to a movie called The Posse. The only way y'all's gonna keep this land is to stand up and fight for it. So, in this time, I just started, 92, I just started my promotions company, Rage Promotions, where I would call up various record labels, independent and major labels, and I was calling them every day or faxing them every day with my proposal of what I could do in Chicago to promote their music. I was a fan of tragedy, and so I was like, I want to work this new record, so I faxed Stuff Break, and they called me back and hired me. And I want to give a shout out to them because they were one of the few labels that actually were legit and they actually paid me, were good to work with, and it actually was a good experience. So shout out to Evan Forrester, Tough Break, a So like I said, one of the first projects was going to be a focus on the Posse movie. And this was a Mario Van Peebles movie, a black cowboy movie, if you don't know about it. It featured himself, his father, Melvin Van Peebles. It had Blair Underwood, it had Tone Loke, and Big Daddy Kane. And controlling effects of what the heck, 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 Isaac Hayes. Hello there, children. So, you know, it had a cast that was definitely relevant to a hip-hop crowd. From the Blaxploitation era, the soul funk thing, and then some hip-hop artists as well. And then the soundtrack had Tragedy, Tone Loke, and Top Choice Clip. So it was a pretty solid offering. All this in mind, as I'm putting together a plan to promote this record, we come up with an idea of doing a premiere of the movie in Chicago. So we had a plan for May 13th, 93, at the River Oaks Drive Theater, um, and it was presented by 95 WJPC AM radio. So I got a plan, I got an itinerary, and I'm going to pick up Evan Forrester, my boss, and tragedy at the airport. So I'm there, I got, I remember I got like a nice car, I, got, I rented like a town car. And I'm at the airport, and it must have been different rules. I mean, I know I was breaking the rules here, but it must have been a little easier to break the rules back in 92. So I remember I'm in the pickup area, and maybe because I had a town car, they made a gave me a break here, but I was not being asked to move by the police. I had a town car, and I was waiting outside, and I was going to walk in to meet them, but you know, I was going to leave the car there, which can't have been legal, but whatever. <laughs> But while I'm standing there, there's another guy by his town car 
and he keeps looking at me. Like looking at me like he like he knows who I am. Which, you know, I'm sure he didn't, but that's what he thought. Eventually, comes over to me. He's an older gentleman, older black gentleman, dressed kind of centric with a flair, if you will. And he's like, you want them rappers? I'm like, no, kind of, but no, I don't really rap anymore. I do this, I'm here for this movie screening, posse, whatever, tragedy. Thinking he's not gonna know what I'm talking about. And then I go, you you know, you look familiar to me too, though. You look familiar. Like, do I know you? He's like, I'm Rudy Ray Moore, the baddest mother. And I'm like, yo, <laughs> this is this is Dolomite. Literally, is, is Dolomite talking to you right now? I was blown away. Now, I gotta be completely honest. I didn't really know his stuff. But I heard of him. He was already iconic in hip hop because of what he had done in the, the film world, the music world. You know, Schooly D had Dolomite references. Big Daddy Kane had Dolomite references. I don't put my shades on so I can see what you ain't doing. And you ain't doing nothing. You ain't doing nothing that I don't do. Let's get on with this anyway. In the ghetto deep, the bad ass stepped on the signifying rapper's feet. And the rapper said, This was all these different things that I knew about him without knowing the full picture. I think I just missed this because like I, you know, I like I've mentioned in earlier stories, growing up in Germany, I was just sort of removed from a lot of things unless they were mainstream. He was never really mainstream. I mean, not just him. I never saw any of the black exploitation films. Those films didn't make it to the army base in Germany. So I never saw any of them to much, much later. And I still haven't seen many of them, even the ones considered classic. But the one saving grace, if you will, is I used to go to the studio. My guy lived in Schaumburg, Illinois, like 1991, 92. So around the exact same time, my guy, Rodney Williams, AKA K-Body, the knowledgeable black Asiatic that's equal, underground solution he had a studio at his house in Schaumburg apartment in Schaumburg and sometimes when I was recording him and Pumpin' Pete and uh, Pathfinder all from the group underground solution TAP they went to a few different names they'd watch Rudy Ray Moore film so I would see him they'd be out there just cracking up I'd be like what are these dudes watching out here and I go out there and see these crazy films where you see the boom mic and the just I'm like yo this film is crazy like is this the intention are they meaning for it to be crazy like this or coming to this theater as its next attraction is the picture that will put you in action the human tornado I used an earthquake to make my film shake. I eat an avalanche when I want ice cream. I punched a hurricane and made it a breeze. So 
I, I didn't really even understand what I was watching. But then here I am around the same time, and this dude is talking to me outside of the airport. So I'm like, what are you, what are you doing here in town? He's like, I came here because my record label's here and they owe me some, and he goes and this dude was like in character. Like, it was like amazing. Dolomite is my name. And rapping and tapping, that's my name. Listen, everybody, listen, everybody. He's like, and now my flight got canceled or I missed my flight and I'm stuck here at the airport. And just, I don't know, I think because I didn't know what to say to all this. I was just kind of caught off guard. I was like, well, we're going to be hanging out at record stores and going to this dinner and then the movie. You want to hang out with us? Like, literally, Rudy Ray Moore is not going to hang out with you, right? He's going to be like, yeah, okay, stranger. Nice meeting you. I'm out. But no, he was like, Sounds great. He tells his driver to leave, and all of a sudden, it's me and Rudy Ray Moore hanging out, waiting for this airplane to arrive. So here I go, <laughs> me and Rudy Ray Moore, walking into the airport, and I can see. Evan and Tragedy are walking down and they look, they see me and they see I'm with someone. I can see they're like, wait a minute, who, who is that? And I just play it cool. We walk up, I'm like, hey Ev, hey Trash, uh, you know, uh, this is my guy, Woody Ray Moore. They both literally bowed down like he was like a king. We're not worthy, we're not worthy. And I think I was pretty much probably like the employee of the year. <laughs> but like, but literally, Rudy Ray Moore hung out with us. We, like, we had to do like retail stores and went to a few places. We had this retail dinner with like a lot of the key like Chicago record store owners. And the thing is like, a lot of those store owners were like older black people who were like really religious. We got Rudy Ray, and they know who Rudy Ray Moore is because he's an icon, but he's in dinner doing triple X jokes and dirty humor, and it's like, it's uncomfortable and amazing all at the same time. It's just like, this is really happening. This is really a Rudy Ray Moore experience, 100%. So then, yeah, then we go to the movie. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure it was like, on my right-hand side was Rudy Ray Moore. My left-hand side, I think, was either Tragedy or Evan Forster. Then one over was the other person. Like, we're on the, I think it was the first row of the show, and we watched the posse together. And then after we watched the movie, I imagine I had to, like, take him back to his hotel or something. I don't remember what happened, but we talked, and he was like, man, I had a great time, and we... He gave me his phone number, like, stay in touch. He was like, if you know any rappers that want to, he's like, I want to do more collaborations. And so I had this idea we're going to, like, connect again and do stuff. And, like, I, I'm the kind of person that never, like, asked for 
autographs. Like, I don't have... The only autograph I have in the world is Ray Ray Morris. Because I think I was just like, this is so surreal. And I had the itinerary for the, the movie premiere in my hand while we were talking saying goodbye. I was like, hey, man, you mind giving me an autograph? He signed it like, you know, Rudy Ray Moore, Dolomite, best wishes, Kevin. It was just so weird that I had to get the autograph. But the funny thing is when I got that, I went home and I threw it into a plastic bin full of like, stickers and promo goods. So for like a decade or more, I lost it. You know, when he passed away um, in 2008, I remember trying to look for it, find it, and I couldn't find it. I thought I just actually threw it away. I eventually did find it when I left Minneapolis uh, uh, a year ago. I found it in the bottom of this emotional bin. Just like, I don't even know how it did not get thrown away or lost, but I found my Rudy Ray Moore autograph. It was just a crazy experience that just to hang out with him for that's the fact that he was willing to do it and that it happened was just blows my mind but then i didn't even think about a different mind-blowing part of it until i was putting together this episode the movie we saw it's crazy because rudy ray moore is a pioneer of the black exploitation genre i took him to see a film made by Mario Van Peebles, who his father, Melvin, is considered the creator of black exploitation. So Melvin and Woody Ray Moore have this incredible importance to that art form of black exploitation. And I took him, I mean, like, that blows my mind. Like, I wonder if, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I told the story a few places. I'm not to assume that Mario Van Peebles has never heard it. But I would like like for him to hear this episode and know that Dola Mike saw that film opening night or before it came out in a special screening. I imagine that would sound amazing to him to some way. So like if someone knows um, the Van Peebles family, Sherilyn, let them know that Rudy Ray Moore saw the film. I don't know what he said about it. <laughs> I don't remember anything about that. But I can guarantee you he saw it. And uh, it was a great experience. So rest in peace to Woody Ray Moore. Man, a very amazing person. Very influential, obviously. And this was super cool to hang out with. I originally didn't have this episode planned for this season. I knew I was going to do it. But then when I saw that movie was coming out, Eddie Murphy and Wesley Snipes. If you haven't seen it, my name is Dolomite. It's amazing to watch. And it gives you a great view into what Rudy Ray Moore did and his importance. And I, and just from me, like having that one moment of hanging out with them, I feel like they captured his spirit and everything really well. So much shout out to Rudy Ray Moore. You definitely left a legacy of many things. It goes from film to comedy to music and definitely to hip hop. Um, a, a lasting legacy forever. From the first to the last, I give them the blast so fast that their life is passed before they has even hit the grass. See me whack, jack, smack, crack, boop, 
black, blackjack, racetrack, and flapjack, and still coming back. Uptown, downtown, crowned and renowned. I put my finger in the ground and turned the whole world around. Dolomite, starring me, Rudy Ray Moore, as Dolomite, and that bad Durville Martin as Willie Green. Dolomite. Rated R. Under 17, not permitted, without a parent, or permission from your warden.